you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome, everyone. I am happy to be here today with Ginny Upel to speak about her new book, In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results, which explores the downside of the prevalent cultural bias for action, even when it's unnecessary or counterproductive. In the book, Jenny shares insights on the benefits of reflective thinking and strategic inaction, which is a less stressful and more efficient way of achieving more by doing less. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, achieve more by doing less, but Ginny is no stranger to bringing forward contrary and innovative thinking. She has more than 20 years of experience driving transformational growth by challenging existing norms in business, working with Fortune 500 telecom, e-commerce, and retail companies. Ginny grew up in Mumbai and is a graduate of Florida International University and Harvard Business School. She has been a practitioner of Vedic and Buddhist meditation and breathwork since 2008. Ginny, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to be here, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Of course, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book and congratulations on it again. Your your book is really welcome relief, I should think, at this time, given the overwhelm and burnout that many people are feeling today. And you really, through the book, are giving people permission to not act and yet still achieve. So you talk about how the book is really about getting mastery over action by embracing what you call strategic in action. So can you tell us a little bit more about how do you define strategic in action? That's a great question. And uh, it does sometimes throw people off. Um, inaction as a word has a very strong connotation usually with it's a negative phenomenon, right? But if I, if I use the word inaction, you're likely to think of the time you were frozen into inaction because of fear or regretting the time when you didn't take action. That is usually the context in which the word inaction comes up. What I'm talking about in the book is using inaction as a choice. The the opposite is also true. Most of us, we think we are taking action as we go about our business. And the more ambitious we are, the more we are action-oriented. And I say this to be true for myself. My contention is most of the times we are not taking action, we are reacting. We are reacting to an external deadline, pressure, fears. And in most cases, the more ambitious you are, the irony is the more you're taking action you don't need, or it's actually getting in the way of the results you want. So strategic inaction is stopping long enough out of choice, not out of fear, but out of choice, knowing that either this is not the right action today, or this is not the right time. Taking that pause to allow a creative idea to come through and then take action on that. So it's, it's more about taking inspired action than 
mindless action. Mm, I really love that. And, you know, one of the quotes that I really loved in your book, too, that I think maybe illustrates this, it was, I'm forgetting what the gentleman's name was, but he said, I went from wanting to be the guy who responds quickly to the guy who responds responsibly. And I thought that that was really interesting that he went from, as you're saying, not just like responding and being in action all the time, but being willing to pause so that he could really be in choice in how he was responding and doing that responsibly. Right, right. You're talking about Mahesh. He had a career in the in the Navy and he joined a corporation, a conglomerate, and he learned the hard way. In the Navy, he, you know, this the story gets into details, but he basically grew up accustomed to always being in action mode. And when he transitioned to a corporate world, he realized that his he was a little too wired for action. He was getting in the way of other people. He had to learn things like delegation and taking a step back. And, and that particular quote came from his habit of responding to every email and jumping into action to realizing, I don't have to. Speed is not always necessary. A thoughtful response is better for me, for him at that stage in his career than just responding quickly. So that was, I thought that was a beautiful quote and I'm so glad you liked it as well. Yes, yes. Well, and I was curious, you have a number of examples of strategic inaction in the book. I was curious if there was a a favorite that you might want to share in addition to that last one. Um, I'll tell you the one story that I'm often asked these days. Uh, when When I wrote these stories, they were all lovely. These are people I interviewed across the world. And to me, everything, all the stories were so powerful and there was so much joy in writing them. Uh, but of course, some stories seem to be resonating more. One of them is the CEO of a medical imaging company. And usually when we think of uh, people in power, positions of power, we think they got there because they are action oriented. They know when the right time to act is. Uh, and he was informed about the death of a child in a machine made by his company, which triggered a crisis Crisis is another context in which the demand is action, take action, right? And especially for a CEO in a very public role. Uh, and this person, and I, this fellow, I know him for, for about 10 years. When he heard about that death of a child, normally the default action for him to take would be to fire off from a playbook, which is lawyer up, call an emergency staff meeting, issue a gag order. Instead, he went for a walk. And he walked for two hours. I won't get into details because it might take too much time, but on the walk, some ideas came up and he took action. He basically leaned in. He went to the scene of the incident. He didn't lawyer up. He didn't do anything from the crisis playbook. He did whatever he felt was right. And the results were fabulous. There was a monetary gain. Of course, they were absolved of any responsibility. The interesting thing out of the story, Kathy, is We often associate courage with just do it. We tell ourselves, you know, just do it. Just take the the leap. I think it takes a great amount of courage to not just do it. To take a step back. Imagine the pressure a CEO is under to do something in a situation like that. And imagine the courage it must have taken for him to go for a walk. In the bigger scheme of things, two hours of not doing anything or going for a walk is nothing, and especially the results he got. But I present that as an example of there is no circumstance in which action is necessary. And examples of strategic inaction is not taking a long break. It could be a short pause 
enough for you to declutter your mind and allow an inspired thought to come through. And I, and I do, I see why people ask me to tell that story. It's, it's a, it's a powerful one. It is. And I really appreciate how you're also pulling through. It's both, I mean, it's a powerful one, but because it's it's such a great example of doing the opposite of what one would expect. And I appreciate that what you're pulling forward is how much it takes courage. And the idea of courage comes up a lot on this podcast. And it's because oftentimes when people are going against the norm or making a change, that's what's called forth. It takes courage. It takes our willingness to do the different, uh, which is really hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to fight those forces that are driving us in a particular direction. That is true. Um, And I love the fact that, you know, the name of your podcast is Sustainable Ambition. I wrote the book for ambitious people. And the word sustainable means a lot to me. Because I, I write the book for sustaining a long-term game. Like life is long. And we, those who are ambitious, are very wired to do something now. We want results now. And we very often then compromise on the quality of action because we are so much in the, in the hurry of what we need now. So you're right. It takes courage. Uh, you used a phrase. I don't know if I can recreated, but the different, doing doing the different, you said, that different is not going to come from other people's formula or the last time you were successful. That's, I think that the crux of the book is creating a portal to that, the different. It, it won't come from the regular, from being in action all the time. It'll come from the moment of pause. The idea of some doing something different will come from there. And then you take action on that. What's what's coming forth for me too, and what you're sh- sharing, Jenny, because I really love this, is this idea of tapping into a different side of ourselves when we allow ourselves to pause. And I, you, you write about that a bit in the book. And what's coming forward for me is also this idea of just creativity that can come forth if you create that pause. You know, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the I, the importance of what I think the term you use is reflective thinking. That's part of what you're saying is, can you create that pause for you to have this time for reflective thinking? And you share some research that Dory Clark has pulled forward in a YouTube, I think the TEDx talk that she did. And I've, I've used this data as well. And I find it so fascinating that, you know, you ask senior leaders, like what is important in senior leaders in your organization to do? And 97% of them say the number one thing is strategic thinking. And yet you go and you ask strategic, you know, uh, senior leaders, um, are you doing strategic thinking? And 98% will say they don't have the time for that, <laughs> right? I just find that so fascinating. So, you know, people um, are not finding a way to carve out that time. And I hear I hear it often from my clients, from my friends, you know, so why do you think it is that people aren't able to make time for this reflective thinking and often do act without pausing. That's so brilliant. And I'm so glad you mentioned Dory Clark. I'm re- I was very happy to uh, to actually get an early praise from her. So her quote is on my book. And I was so thrilled to, to have that acknowledgement from her because I do admire the work she's been doing. 
And what you talk about, like busy executives or or busy moms for that matter, right? It doesn't matter what life you're living. You, we are all too busy to think. You're so true. You're so right. So the question is, how do you, how do you introduce these moments of pause? Something I've been reflecting a lot on. It so happens that I have a meditation practice, which has been running for many years. And by now it has become an integrated part of my life, whether it's my daily meditation or I do multi-day silent retreats. Having said that, I acknowledge that meditation is difficult for a lot of people. Like unless it becomes a habit, you'll probably not get the, the deep benefits out of it. To my own surprise, when I was doing research uh, in writing my own book, I came across research that seemed to suggest that mind wandering, which is a phenomenon where your mind is just all over the place, is uh, good. It's a good thing in the sense it leads to creative, powerful ideas. And my first reaction was, no way. Mind wandering is bad. It is a distracted mind. And as a meditation practitioner, meditation is often presented as the antidote to a wandering mind. So how can you, like, who, who is publishing this research? <laughs> so I went pretty deep into the research. I spoke to a neurologist out of UCLA. Her name is Mary Helen Imodino-Yang. So I, did, I really went pretty deep because I was so skeptical. Anyway, what came out of this summary, which I put in the book, is uh, our brain has a way of coming up with creative ideas if it is left alone. Most of the time, we are very busy engaging our mind. Even when we go for a walk, we have ear pods. We are listening to music. Guess, that's, guess what that's doing? Your, your senses are engaged because your part of your brain has to process this incoming signal. If you give your brain a break from engagement with the world, then parts of your brain light up, which are called the default mode network. And the way this part of the brain functions is it connects the dots on data you've been gathering your whole life practically, and it comes up with aha moments. People will tell me, I get my best ideas in the shower or when I'm driving. And I say, instead of letting that happen by accident, why don't you take half an hour or 15 minutes, which you can probably find in your busy day, stare out the window. Like don't scroll your mobile phone. Don't doom scroll. Don't talk to anybody. Don't even listen to music and just let your mind figure it out. So we are too busy to take time out, but I think we are not too busy to take out 15 minutes. So maybe you can try it as an experiment, Kathy, and, and tell me what that does to you. <laughs> I, I love that because it's it, I, I so appreciate the reframe and I'm going to come back to meditation in a second, but I appreciate that you're bringing this forward because so many people do struggle with this idea of sitting quietly with their eyes closed, say, and doing a meditation. But this reframe of, in some ways, yes, it's not about attention management. It's actually allowing yourself, your mind to, as you said, mind to wander and kind of go and find the solutions. Um, but I think this might actually give people, again, permission to, to approach this reflective thinking in a different way that's actually quite accessible for them. So I, I really love that. And I think it's quite interesting because I've had a couple different people on the podcast who have brought meditation forward. And just recently, I had Dr. Sahar Youssef from UC Berkeley on in episode number 51, where she was saying she's a neuroscientist and she was saying how, you know, one of the things that surprised her most in her research 
has been just the power of meditation and all the research that shows how just even 10 minutes of meditation a day can have so much benefit. And she even talks about, you know, even for longevity, you were talking about longevity, Jenny, she, she has said that, you know, working on attention management can really benefit us as we age. And so, I, I really appreciate that, you know, despite this focus on meditation as well, you're giving people a different avenue and a way to kind of tap into pausing and tapping into that way of reflective listening and finding that creativity and new solutions through through this type of pausing. Right, right. And I agree, uh, taking a break or strategic inaction is accessible to all of us in different ways. There isn't any one formula that is going to work for everyone. I quote Mary Ellen again from UCLA. She used the language of restorative habits. I I remember the, the reason she brought this up is I asked her this question. I said, you know, I'm an introvert and things like meditation and even mind wandering, sitting by myself, staring into empty space. After a while, I'm comfortable with it. But they're extroverts or there are people who are just, they have so much physical energy that they can't sit still. So does it mean that they are doomed to forever be (laughs) chasing action? And she said that's then she that prompted her to introduce this idea of a restorative habit, which basically means any activity which is less engaging than your normal mode of operation. So for some people, it could be gardening. It could be doodling. It could be some physical activity, but which is autopilot so that your mental energies are getting restored as opposed to getting spent. Meditation is a very deep process if done right. Very powerful. I highly encourage. But for some people, it becomes so intimidating that they it actually stresses them out. They sit in meditation, then thoughts come rushing and they get scared and they give up on it. The irony, the biggest irony of it is The act of giving up on meditation because thoughts were coming into your head is exactly the symptom where our desire is, I should have no thoughts and I should do something about it. Meditation is the extreme opposite of doing. (laughs) And it's hard to explain sometimes in words, but the reason why meditation, I'll go back to why that is good is it is developing the practice in micro moments in 10 minutes if you just develop the practice a little bit every day of being okay with even the thoughts rushing into your mind, the itch developing in the body, and don't do anything about it, think of it as in small doses developing the muscle, which over years is powerful. So I say to people, if it's too intimidating, don't worry. But at the same time, give it a shot. Do it for 40 days. And tell yourself, I can give up on it afterwards, but do it for 40 days. See if you get benefit out of it, and then you'll find yourself sticking to it. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I'm curious if from your own practice, so you've been doing this for some time, what have you learned from adding meditation as part of your regular practice of inaction? On the one hand, uh, the struggle, meditation brings you face to face with the struggle of wanting to control the mind. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at marketing for meditation or the promise of meditation, it seems to be that will take you to the place of where you are in no thought zone. 
the irony is the moment you sit down in meditation, thoughts do rush into your mind. And it doesn't matter you whether you've been practicing for a month or 10 years. The fact is even today, I find myself sitting in meditation and all I did was think and I will say things like, oh, I didn't have a good meditation today. I know that's a silly thing to say. There is no such thing as a good or bad meditation. It's, it's like this practice that is never ending. There is no such thing as you have arrived in the world of meditation. It is a practice. It's, it's called a practice for a reason. It's constantly, a good analogy is why do we brush our teeth every day? It's so disappointing that I have to brush my teeth every day. They get dirty. Like, why can't I just brush and be done with it? Similarly, meditation or, or mastering action, as I talk about in the book, is a practice because every day you have to renew the relationship with life around you. So yeah, meditation is a powerful practice. I am more comfortable with it. I'm more accepting. Doesn't mean there are days when I get very frustrated with myself that I didn't have a good meditation today. <laughs> yeah, understood. And yes, and I think so much of this is all a practice. And I also just want to call out what you what you said, despite the the power of meditation and really helping people understand it's not about not thinking. It's actually being able to sit with having all those thoughts rushing through you or other signals in your body. But you also going back to the restorative habit and that idea that you're also, again, offering people another way to kind of enter this practice or start to practice this in action. And you actually, in the book, you talk about a number of tools. You talk about silence, you talk about procrastination. And as you mentioned earlier, the daydreaming or mind wandering and one of the things you talked about also was this concept, and I, I don't know if you call it an Indian norm or an expression of time pass. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that, because I think it's a really lovely uh, like element of your culture that I wish you know that, that people might be able to perhaps embrace ourselves and actually integrate it. So could you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about time pass? Right. So I'm from Mumbai, as you said, India. And uh, Growing up, especially in university days, uh, even now it's it's a common phrase, uh, which is like a friend calls and says, what are you up to today? And you say, I'm doing time pass. So growing up in India, TP meant time pass, not the other. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the notion is, I don't have a plan. I'm just going to sit around and whatever, like whatever. And, and every moment it'll be whatever you feel like doing. Of course, life goes on, you become an quote unquote adult and time pass becomes wasting time. And in fact, when you're young, you'll probably have a mother telling you you're wasting your time, even though what you're doing is time pass. Young people, you know, especially when their brains are still forming, you'll notice young children kind of staring out into empty space. Something is happening in their brain. Don't underestimate how your brain is developing when you are not engaged in activities. And when we are young, either we have the time or because our brain is naturally wanting to develop, we do it more. And as adults, we give up on this. Even though this is a very Mumbai thing, there are other, you know, in the Dutch culture, there's this concept of Nixon, which is the same. I'm hanging around doing absolutely nothing. And that is, in some ways, your, your brain is forming. And in some ways, ideas come up. Thoughts are born, which are so intangible that perhaps you don't even realize that you are thinking or that the thoughts that are coming up during that 
period of time pass is actually influencing your future action. Uh, but so, yeah, I've tried to bring back mind wandering time pass. It's it's the same idea. I've tried to bring it back in my life now. <laughs> Easier said than done, but it's still powerful. I think it's so powerful. And I love that it's such a cultural norm. I really think that we could here in the United States could really, and probably around the world uh, elsewhere where this, you know, we don't have this cultural norm, it would be so helpful. I mean, Oliver Berkman in his book, 4,000 Weeks talks about this and how it's just not typical, typically, especially in the United States, it's not typical for us to be allowed, if you will, it's not seen just this work ethic that's kind of in our culture. It's not seen as a, a a good thing to just be passing time, time pass, right? And right. and not and not have a plan. And we always, it's even he was saying, like even in our downtime or and I have to watch this with sustainable ambition too. I'm kind of like, hey, if we're gonna have an action plan around how we're going to be ambitious and stretch ourselves, then we should have a plan and, and be thoughtful about how we're going to sustain ourselves. And yet in that, you know, he's he was kind of saying even in those things that we sustain, we, there's there's a purpose to them. Right. And it's almost as if we never allow ourselves to be purposeless. And I think that's what I'm sensing from time passes. It's this permission, again, bringing that word up a lot today, but to to really just be and be in the moment and kind of follow your energy and what's calling you in that moment. It is a powerful notion. It is difficult. Uh, and I didn't quite grow up in America, but I the there is a symptom of observed, which is what you pointed to. When I, I've had a corporate job most of my career, and I would often hear people come back from vacation exhausted, and they would say, I need a vacation from my vacation. So even on their vacation, they were so driven to do to do this, that, and the other. Uh, so yes, you're right. I think here the zest for life has led to an assumption that if I want to live my fullest life and if I want all the things, if I want to get the things I want, I must take action. We just underestimate the power of a thoughtful pause. It's, I'm not saying you don't need to take action. I'm saying if you give yourself a pause, you'll come up with a better idea, a better inspired action that will get you better results. I, somewhere along the lines, I guess we either forgot or we dropped it <laughs> when we were growing up. So I, I think it's worth bringing it back. Yeah, I agree with this. It's really an interesting thing too, Ginny, because I think that, um, I think this idea of bringing back a pause and and yet like knowing that sometimes we learn in action too. You know, sometimes if it's all just in thinking, we don't have enough information or we don't know until we do. And so one of the things you bring up in the book is this idea about, you say this book is about mastering action, which is developing a discernment of when to act and when non not to act. And so I appreciated this fact that you're bringing up the idea of discernment and what that is really that that's what's required. And it's kind of like you're saying, what is this moment calling for? And you also share how context is really important. So, you know, th the final thing I'll just say is that one of the things that I thought was really powerful and what you're saying about pausing too, is that I've, I'm playing with this other wisdom that others have bringing up, which is this idea of what if it were easy? And I could see adding to this idea, this idea of adding in and like an in action plan. I think you bring that up in the book where it's like, can you be 
a little bit more intentional even in bringing in that pause as you're thinking about what your next action might be. It, it kind of m- might play or support this idea of discernment. But how do you think about those different concepts um, around both discernment, context, and really, you know, getting clear on when is it calling for an action versus versus action? Uh, you, you said something about, you know, the, the wisdom of uh, what if it were easy? And it reminded me of something my sister, I, I'm the youngest of five, and I, one of my older sisters said a week ago, she said, if success were guaranteed, what would you do? And that has stayed with me. And this particular week, for four days now, I keep bringing up that phrase, if success was guaranteed, what would I do? It is when we are not sure, when we are insecure, we will do more than we need to, or we will not do what we should, right? We'll we'll kind of take the wrong action or wrong inaction because we are afraid. But if you felt that success was guaranteed, then that will inform your decisions. And and I'm sharing this, it just, you mentioned it. So I, I felt prompted to share that I am in that state of mind right now. And indeed, I it changed my behavior in the last four days. <laughs> Things uh, I am actively looking to get back into corporate work life. And I do keep telling myself every now and then that voice in my head, you're not doing enough. You're not networking enough. You're not doing <laughs> It was so funny that I not only did I tell myself, look, is, is there anything for me to do right now? Truly? No. Then take a chill pill. <laughs> <laughs> and on the flip side, there was an email I had. I was a little agonizing. I wasn't sure about sending. I was feeling a bit conflicted. I sent it. No regrets. Like, I don't care what happens. Like, success is guaranteed. So I, I'm sharing that. It just came up that you're right. It's the You have to find a way to put yourself in an ease state of mind. I'm sharing this week, somebody gave me inspiration that putting yourself in that E state of mind is to tell yourself, hey, success is guaranteed. Or you can find other ways to put yourself in an E state of mind where you just, uh, ideas I give to other people is go for a walk. Um, I'll, I'll give you another story from a Dutch entrepreneur, which is also in the book. He accidentally discovered before making a pitch, a major pitch to a new client, He went for a walk because he was in a new city and he had nothing to do. So he wasn't rehearsing or anything. He was just, you know, relaxed. Of course, he landed the deal. But more importantly, he reflected on his behavior. He said the way I engaged with these people, it was a whole other side of him. Super relaxed, super like he's talking like a peer, not somebody who's pitching. And he started doing this as a habit. And this was back in 2012, of course, very successful. His whole whole team is doing what he's doing. More importantly, when I heard the story, Kathy, I started to do that. And I don't have an hour before every critical meeting, but I can always find five minutes. I started doing that before these podcasts. These podcasts made me nervous. I'm not a podcast person. I wrote a book. Doesn't mean I know how to talk about a book. (laughs) But it's like what will put me in ease sometimes is just chill pill, take a step back, declutter the mind. And then what comes is likely to be awesome. So I think you said it well, put yourself in a place of ease and then whatever comes out of that, go do it. Mm, I love that. Thank you for pulling that forward and for being so transparent in your own experiences, Ginny, and also pulling that example from the book as well, which is a powerful one. And it just continues to bring forward this idea of 
discernment, put yourself in ease as you're saying, and noticing when it's the right moment for either the inaction or the action. Um, before we start to wrap up, one of the inaction elements, because this is a theme on the podcast that I wanted to ask you about, and one of the things I like talking about are sabbaticals. And you've taken a sabbatical, and yet you also said in the book that it also was a time of being uncomfortable when you were in that that sabbatical. And you actually said you hated those phases, but you look back now and view them differently, it seems. So when you think about it now, how did your sabbaticals like serve you or what was the benefit of those times of inaction when you were taking a sabbatical? Yeah, that's so that's such a good question, uh, Kathy. Uh, people like me, and I'll say people like me being people who are driven, ambitious, and they associate themselves with a particular kind of work that they start identifying with. What I learned in my sabbatical, I learned it while it was going on and even now reflecting back, is my sense of identity and self-worth was very tied to the work I did. And I was, you know, I was and am an executive. I was a senior person in a company. And you start to define yourself as that, as if that's the whole of me. And my career has played a very important role in my life more than family because I don't live in a country where I grew up and my family is far away. So disconnecting from that source of identity and self-worth can be very um, uncomfortable. And I think I shared this in the book where well-meaning people, you know, you meet somebody new and they ask, what do you do? <laughs> and depending on my state of mind, I would be either really depressed, like, I don't know what I do these days. <laughs> or if I'm in a good state of mind, I would claim I'm a technologist. I am a retail this, that, and the other, and I am in between jobs, right? Like the, the confidence would come forth depending on my in-the-moment association with that life that I think is the life I should live. Uh, so the sabbatical taught me, made, brought me face-to-face -face with how, how narrowly I define myself. And it doesn't mean that I completely stopped. I'll still go back, we, we, which is why I keep coming back to it's a practice. These things are not one and done. You have the experience. I'm not going to forget that experience. I may still go lock myself into now I'm an author. I associate myself as an author. And two years from now, nobody's going to ask me anything about the book because everybody will have forgotten. And then will I feel bad about it? So, I mean, it's good to have these experiences and hopefully laugh about it. Yes. Well, and I appreciate Thank you again for just sharing your experience. And I I think it's very true that others have shared this as well when both either they're on a sabbatical or, and I've experienced this too, or when they've made a change or they stepped out of a corporate life and are starting to go out on their own, there is this identity crisis that does happen and one needs to work through. And then I also just appreciate you saying that this is a practice. I think of sustainable ambition similarly. It's not a one and done thing, and you just switch, a, you know, flip a switch, and and things are sustainable, ongoing. It's kind of why I I, ch I am always challenged by the term of work life balance because it just assumes that we're always in equilibrium, and it's just not a reality of living in today's modern world, and probably in any world, frank, frankly. So um, I just appreciate the transparency and, and in doing that, again, normalizing what all of us are juggling as we go through life. And as, especially, as you said, ambitious people. So as we wrap up, I'm, I'm curious, Ginny, 
you know, when you think about this book, like what is your hope that this book kind of does for people, like in having them develop this practice of inaction? Mm. I'm hoping so ambitious people have a lot of strategies, right? They have ideas on how to go about becoming successful. I'm hoping they'll add uh, strategic inaction as, as a tool in their toolkit, uh, because ambitious people want results. And the name of my book is uh, in forward slash action, rethinking the path to results. I care for results very much. The sabbatical I took, I came back into the workforce. I took a step up in the corporate ladder. I made more money. Everything got better. So even though it felt like I had left when I came back, I was that much stronger in, in my positioning and my landing. I also moved from one part of the country to another, which I wanted. Uh, again, during the pandemic, I found myself without a conventional job. Once again, identity crisis. But when I embraced that inaction, which was difficult for me, look what came out of that. I wrote a book. I would have never thought I would write a book. So I want people to take away that I am not talking about inaction as a way to stop and smell the roses and be happy. And I mean, be happy. Of course, I want you to be happy. But this is about getting results. That's what the book is about. So embrace it as a strategy to be successful. That's what I'd like for people to understand. This is a powerful strategy. Mm, I love that. That's so wonderful. Well, Jenny, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for the book and raising everyone's awareness to this being a powerful strategy that we can deploy. And, you know, if people want to find you, want to keep in touch, want to find about the book, and I know you mentioned before we started that it's won an award, which congratulations, like, where can people find you to, to get in touch and learn more about your book? Thank you. I'm pretty psyched that it won a literary award. Uh, the book is available online wherever you find wherever you buy books. I am fairly easy to reach. My first and last name is unique. So the best way to contact me is Ginny Opal, J-I-N-N-Y-U-P-P-A-L.com. And I do love hearing from people. I know some of these ideas are counterintuitive and they're very, they don't sound right <laughs> to a lot of people. So if you're hesitating or if it doesn't make sense, I, I encourage you to just write to me and we'll have a chat about it. That sounds great. And you certainly give people tips in the book. And I think even just encouraging people like try just test things out and try them out for yourself and take those 15 minutes of either mind watering or sitting in silence, whatever it might be that some of the tips that you suggest um, in the book or testing out meditation and really put it into, you know, it's so funny. I'm saying put it, put in action, into, into action, action yep, yep. Uh, and see how it works for you and, and, and try out the strategic tool um, and, and see what results you get. So yeah. that's wonderful. Well, I'll capture all of that in the show notes, Jenny. Thank you again for being on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, this was so good. And I do hope people get some benefit out of this. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. 
And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.